0: or go to FailYourWay.com for more info. Now back to the show. Hey guys, Anna here. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And this is the final in the triumvirate of oldies but goodies that I'm releasing. This episode is with none other than Rich Roll, um, host of the very popular podcast, the Rich Roll podcast, which is n- always in the top 10, usually in the top 10 podcast lists. Um, Rich is, you know, an underachiever, kidding. He graduated from Stanford. He went to Cornell Law. Um, he's the author of Finding Ultra, and he is best known for eating a plant-based diet and for being the fittest man in the world. So this uh, interview took place several years ago, and um While we focus on addiction and uh, recovery, because that was the topic of the podcast at the time, we do get into launches, which is very relevant, because next week you're going to be hearing the first of the new incarnation of the show, may it be the final incarnation of the show, uh, launch pod. So uh, stay tuned, get excited, and now I give you Rich Roll. I like starting it by talking about all the things people do wrong as guests on
1: this. Oh, as guests? Or <laughs> well, in society. Well, in, in,
0: life. <laughs> in life. No, but um, but yeah, I... So, so, Rich, hi.
1: How's it going?
0: Really good to see you.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: I don't remember... When was the last time we saw each other? It's been other?
1: a really long time. I was trying to remember. I think the last time I saw you might have been years ago at was he? Heath Slane's Beach House on 4th of July. You were with Peter...
0: Peter, Peter M. Peter M. Oh, yes. You know what's funny?
1: Who I saw last night, by the way. Oh,
0: you did? Yeah, yeah. He I has know. a new haircut. He always has a new haircut. <laughs> yeah. That's sort of what you can count. Uh-huh. You can't count on a lot with Peter M, but yeah. you can count on the new haircut. Yeah. Um. That's funny because that is my sole memory of talking to you was like, we talked. Because, okay, keep in mind- when I met you, I was, for a year, I was just in my haze mm-hmm. of early sobriety. Nothing registered. There were tall men around. Right. And, like, sometimes I knew their names, but mostly not. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and then I, t- I definitely remember that 4th of July because I remember we were, I didn't know whose house it was, but I remember I was hanging out with Peter and we were at the beach. And then it was this party that was not on the beach. It was not on the beach, right. but we were on a of- roof. Yeah, yeah, and I remember we talked, and I would never talked to you really. At, no, like, not before. really. I mean,
1: I'd seen you around, um, but I just remember I was like, "Oh wow, she's like a real writer," you know, because I Love was sort it. of this closet aspiring writer. Oh at the time. wow, and I was like she actually has like stuff going on and look, Pete, she's with Peter and he's going to develop her stuff into a movie. You
0: know? <laughs> like, <laughs> Looks can be deceiving. Yeah. Although I will say that Peter, Peter did give me a, I did do a one screenwriting job for, um, where, that I got paid to do. And right. that came through Peter know and maybe that's
1: what we talked about. Disastrously. Sure.
0: Oh, yeah. I was probably bragging incessantly. Uh-huh. I'm glad that I could pull the wool over your eyes. And I know. So
1: we it. haven't we haven't seen each other in a while. But no, I feel but there was much intimately connected to you. Well, yes. Because when my book was getting ready to come out, I was like, I was baffled at what I, how I was supposed to manage right. the process of marketing my book and getting people interested in it. And I was like, who do I know that's written books? And I was like, Anna's written books. I haven't talked to her in ages. I don't know if she even remembers who I am, but I'm going to reach out to her. You were you very, did. very helpful. You gave me some great input and advice. I did. I mean, I'm so negative. And you put me in touch with uh, Tyson Cornell who's become a friend. Oh, great. He's He's such a good
0: guy. Mm -hmm. Wait, I, so did I tell you, I said hire Tyson if you're smart? Is that? Yeah,
1: I didn't end up hiring him. Um, for a variety of reasons but right. but we became buddies and and you know touch such a time good to guy time, so, yeah, yeah yeah he's yeah. Good. he's very cool
0: but it's interesting because I, I definitely remember you reaching out to me and me going oh my god like i can't give this guy this guy is so accomplished i don't i don't have anything to offer and and i'm so negative about book publishing i'm even more negative now yeah but that's that. a, that's
1: good information to know like yeah. here's what to avoid here's what you can expect and not expect because i thought um, I'm like, oh, my, I have um, I have this book coming out and it's with a major publishing house and they're just going to send me my itinerary of all the places where I'm going to travel right, right, and talk right. about my book and they're going to arrange everything. And, right. and you were like, not so fast. And, and, and sure enough, I mean, I had a pretty charmed experience with my publisher and but you know, yeah. the, the marketing really falls on you as, a, as the writer to make it happen. And you made that very clear to me. And I, and I you know, I sort you intuited it like,
0: And you're like, and I'm going like, to go on
1: Sunday. Well, day. I mean, I worked as hard on marketing it probably harder than I did on writing the book. And yeah. I think that's what most writers don't realize. Like, you've got to cultivate your own audience. You've got to make them interested. And, you, you know, all of that is really on you. It's not, you can't, you can't dispatch that to somebody else.
0: But also in terms of your, you know, sort of good experience, you had something to market that Was fascinating, most people don't. Most people have a book come out, and it's, you know what I mean? So imagine not having all that material. I mean, that's that's where...
1: But you know as well as I do that when you're writing, especially something that's memoir-oriented, you have those, those uh, you know, shame-spiral moments of thinking who could possibly be interested in this drivel that I I'm mean, putting down on paper, you know? Well,
0: like my life is a series of shame-spirals, <laughs> so yeah. you don't need to tell me. But yours, it, but the, the nice thing about yours is it's inarguably <laughs> interesting when only a few people... Um, have had this experience when you're the only person and when you know it's motivating to a whole lot of people, right?
1: But I didn't know that at the time. You didn't? No, I didn't know. I didn't know if anybody would be interested in the book. And the, the book's gone on to be very successful and I couldn't be happier about that. But but certainly, you know, I'm, I'm not... I'm not wired to be naturally self-confident. My default position is self-loathing and and self-defeatist and all of those things. So, you know, sort of combating that and and trying to overcome that is that's the challenge, right? That's the challenge of recovery.
0: I know it's my. I know that's true. But I Mm. mean, yeah. But amazing. So you can be one of, you know, the world's fittest man and and be grappling with
1: it. To to be clear, not that I actually believe that I am or was, but that definitely helps sell books.
0: I'll take it. It was, okay, I have these facts in front of me. You placed 11th place in your very first Ultraman, Mm -hmm. making you the third fastest American and the second fastest swimmer, and it was a three-day, 320-mile situation, which you've now done many times. Yeah,
1: I've done a couple times now. It's it's like a really long triathlon. People who who are listening who don't know what that is, Um, you probably know what an Ironman is. An Ironman is... A 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike, and a, and a marathon all in one day. And Ultraman is a race that is held every year, Ultraman World Championships in Hawaii. And it's um it's essentially a little over twice that distance, but you do it over three days, and you circumnavigate the Big Island of Hawaii. So I've done that race a couple times. and
0: Literally I've twice? Is that what you mean? You've, what's that? It's a couple times. You've, you've done it twice.
1: I did it in 2008, and then I did it in 2009, and I got sixth in that race. And then I went back in 2011, um, and I ended up DNFing. I, I had a respiratory infection. What's I DNFing like, mean? means? Uh, I had to stop in the middle of the race. and okay. pulled out, yeah, because okay. I was like coughing up blood. <laughs>
0: right, right, right.
1: But uh, but yeah. So.
0: But when it goes quote unquote well, you are up for three days doing this, and then your you, body. Well, does it's like one a stage
1: afterwards. race, you know, like in the Tour de France, they race and then they go to bed and then oh, they race do the Oh, you do that. Okay. So this is like that. Like you do a stage and then you go to sleep and you wake up and you okay. do another stage. So the first day you swim 6.2 miles and you ride your bike 90 miles. And then the second day you ride your bike 170 miles. And then the third day you do a 52 mile run. And so you kind of go all the way around the big island, which is a big island, it's like the size of Connecticut.
0: And you sleep, like, wherever you, you know, they figured out where you're going to land. They just yeah, you, can't have, be like, you have, like, there in this y- place. Well,
1: each athlete has to bring their own crew. So it's, it's very old school. They don't even shut the traffic off. There's no, like, prize money or there's no big media attention in this race. It's right. very, like you got to be dedicated. And, uh,
0: you can't be in it for the cash and prize. So
1: each athlete has a van that kind of follows them around and takes care of their athlete, and then there's a place to stay each night. So.
0: Right, right, right. <laughs> Not that like ascetic. <laughs> yeah. I thought I pictured you running for three days straight. Uh, like, I don't know. I don't yeah. know anything about this, but but I do Nor know so. You. So okay, but but to go, let's go back even further because you know for all that you've written and you and you were such a good writer. I cannot believe you ever doubted yourself as a writer. Oh, thank you. Um, you know that you actually I haven't read a lot that you have written about Mm. the addiction phase Mm -hmm. you know it's it does sort of get um not not glossed over that's the wrong phrasing but but you haven't gone as into it as of course that's my obsession you know um and and it's it is hard to reconcile with this you know guy who's been successful at seemingly everything he's tried you know Oh, um, uh,
1: very. That's so not the case, though. I mean,
0: but you get how at least it looks right, like that right. on paper. When you,
1: yeah, you can kind of crap the story and frame it so that it looks like this, you know, upward trajectory. But it's, you know, as you know, in sobriety right. and in life and everything, it's not a linear thing, you know. And no, looking back, us. it looks like it all happened really quickly and easily, but it, it, it definitely wasn't. And, you know, I, t- I tell my addiction story in the book, and, and I do talk about it, and I'm open about it. Right. We're kind right. of chatting. Um, before we started recording, about this kind of issue of, of, of anonymity yeah. and, and the tradition of anonymity that, that envelops recovery, and, and how that is sort of a global thing and also a very personal thing. Like, we have decision making power of our own personal anonymity, but right. not that. And we don't really, that doesn't extend to other people. And right. how do you talk about recovery and how do you talk about addiction without transgressing? Right. That, you know, well, and especially
0: when, you know, uh, 12 step There is, there is no, there is no expert, there is no scholar, there is no, you know, mm-hmm. board you can call and say, hey, is it okay if I say this, but I don't say that. Right. Um, and there are a lot of p- opinion, you know, alcoholics and, and all people tend to be very opinionated. And so you can you, just by even saying, publicly that you're an alcoholic, that could ruffle somebody's feathers right. and they could tell you that, you know, that that's wrong.
1: Like um, when I write about it, uh, I don't even know if it's okay for me to say alcoholics anonymous or just say like recovery. Like if, am I transgressing the parameters of that tradition by even mentioning the name? I don't know. Well, how but, have
0: you, how have you, you ha- did you mention that in your book? Look, I'm scared to even say I it. Think back.
1: That I think maybe I did one or two times, right. but I was trying to kind of cautious about it because I don't, you know, I, my only goal is like I want to be of service and help people, right? Exactly. And, and, and if I'm personally anonymous about it, then I'm not able to be of service to people through writing or podcasts. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. No, I mean, you're talking to someone who has received an email and the from field said Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. So I once got a letter. It's funny. I I can't remember if I've talked about this on the podcast before. From the
1: boss of AA. (laughs)
0: I got one from (laughs) AA. And it basically said to me, I, I read it and I was so freaked out that I got it that I just sort of closed it and never went back to it, but I can search and find and I haven't done that. But it basically said like, we know you're talking about us. Please try to behave. Mm-hmm. Kind of a thing.
1: But what does that mean?
0: I, that's what I didn't know. And so, you know, my whole thing about it was when I wrote my first book, which was a novel, I, I fictionalized everything. I was just mm-hmm. paranoid because I felt, I felt a little betrayed by the, a lot of the memoirs I'd read that had said, like, given addresses of meetings and talked about these things. So I did it. And I know, I'm not sure I did it right, but I changed, you know, I changed the language. I called sponsor something else. I called step something else. But mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about what had happened. And then when I started working at the Fix, I said, "Oh, I would. I, I'll do this job, but I won't ever talk about AA." And then, and then you, we started doing that website. And, but how can you, like, how can you be the Fix and not talk about? Well, that's what I, so I was naive, and yeah. so that people immediately started talking. You know, AA is the worst. You know, because the AA haters like went yeah. out and drove to that site, and so then I realized, you know, if there's nothing to defend it, I, I will do it. But I get nervous every single time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really it's an interesting thing. Um, you know. I'm sure for every kind of email like that, like the AA email that you received, you probably get countless emails from people saying, thank you for writing what you wrote. It touched me. And, you know, now like, you know, I have a clearer idea of what addiction or alcoholism is. And, you know, I'm looking at my own, you know, behaviors and, and now I'm trying to redress them. So, when you receive emails like that and you know that you're affecting people in a positive way, you know that that's the counterpoint to that.
0: How many emails like that do I you get?
1: Know? I get countless every single day. I get emails from people. But saying, is it
0: about addiction or is it about you know getting healthy?
1: It's both, you know, because my book is weird. It's like trying to be three or four books in one, you know. like Right. I, right? It's, like, it's like well, I have I the addi- It's sort of like this um, million little pieces, you know, kind of permanent midnight aspect to it, and then it has the kind of. Lance Armstrong. It's not about a bike. It's not right. about the bike aspect to right. it. And then it has a kind of a self-help, dietary, you know, kind of how-to guide to it. Right. So it's kind of balancing all these different things. But and and certain. So it, there isn't one clear, definitive audience for it. But there's, you know, people out there that are interested in the recovery aspect of it. And I get emails all the time. And on my podcast. I have guests on, and we get into it. Yeah. Oh, I saw you on know, so. Mishka
0: Shubali. Yeah, know, yeah. yeah. Oh,
1: you do. I'm going to see him next week in, in New York.
0: So, how and I asked guys- him if he
1: knew you, and he said, "Yeah, I we, yeah, because you guys are the kings of the Kindle single." Yeah, well,
0: what, yeah, he said it like that. He said it all, yeah, like he was trying to remember. We totally know well, each other. Okay.
1: Yeah, he was like, "I think I met her once." Like, he knows you from like online in your work. No, he's
0: crazy. No, we have he? hung out. That's right. ludicrous. We
1: should call him right now.
0: Yeah, right. I want to. I, <laughs> I want if my name comes up for him to go, oh. not like this vague, weird look on his face, like. I think I met her once. No, we not now. Not
1: in not in like a condescending right, way. Right, right. Like in a, in a more like oh she knows more than I do kind no, of no, way. No, no. When good. I
0: first when yeah the the first call you make mm-hmm. if you get assigned a Kindle single is to Mishka Shubali if you're lucky. Right. You know, basically it was like I I I met with the editor about doing it and I uh-huh. said I reached out to Mishka right away and he was super helpful.
1: Right. Okay. Cool. And then
0: we sort of became friends. I thought we were uh-huh. friends. Maybe I need to reassess. No, I think
1: you are friends. <laughs> But I'm gonna so. I'm gonna see him. I'm going to New York unless my plane gets snowed out this weekend and I'm gonna I'm gonna hang out with him. But he's one of those guys who like like I started reading his stuff oh, and I so was good. like, Oh, this guy's my best friend already. Yeah. And then I met him and it was like we knew each other forever, so we text every almost every day. And yeah, I could like, totally see he's that. My guy.
0: Okay, you're closer to yeah, him than me. I love him. It's fine. No, no, his writing is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Is so he's so good. And um, yeah, and I'm I'm not surprised that you two connected. So, how, right. so you did you reach out to him when you read something? We about him? were put.
1: In, we were put in. I knew who he was, and also because his book would always come up when I would. Obsessively check Amazon. Oh, yeah, the
0: longest run. (laughs) Like, the
1: long run was always like a notch above mine. And I was like, Who is this guy? Yeah, this single, single, you know, 30
0: page thing. We
1: were introduced by another podcasting guy, actually, who was like this guy, Dean Dwyer. He's like, You should should interview Mishka. Yeah, I reached out to him, and like, we just had a couple snarky emails back and forth. Yeah, I was like, Oh, I love this guy already. But did you do it
0: over? You did it over the phone? I was going
1: to New York, so we did it. We've done. We've actually done three podcasts together. Oh, my, God. Like my I mean, if he lived in L.A., he would be like my co-host. Right, anyway. right, right,
0: right.
1: Because <laughs> awesome. I could talk to him forever. But yeah. Um, but yeah, but so so, yeah, with Michigan, with a few other people, we've gotten into the, you know, the addiction and recovery stuff. And, and I love talking about that. And and, uh, you know, I know that it's helpful. To people, because I get too many emails that make it undeniable. So, you know, we, you and I, we've made a choice to not be anonymous about our recovery and our sobriety, and that that has its own perils. Right. When
0: did you make that choice?
1: Uh, I made it when you were writing. I think I I I was writing. You know, I would I would reference it in blogging occasionally, but it wasn't until I wrote my book. Right.
0: And then you had to make a conscious choice. Yeah. And I was
1: making that conscious choice. And and what happened was. You know, I'm writing, I get this book deal, which, you know, first of all, I, you know, I'm astounded that I even got a book deal. Okay, so what happened? So So you
0: were blogging and you were gathering an audience.
1: I was, yeah, I was blogging. I was, I was sort of, yeah, gathering an audience through writing on my website and, you know, sort of sharing, you know, sort of very honestly and openly like this journey that I was on. And then when I started to perform quite well in these races, then, you know, sort of more mainstream media was picking up the story and, right. and then men's fitness ran this thing and said, I was one of the 25 fittest guys. And so suddenly I was getting all this attention, you know, right. where I was just like, I'm just doing my thing. right? And, uh, and then CNN, like Sanjay Gupta picked up the story and ran me and ran a story about me. And, and so suddenly I was like, you know, kind of more in the spotlight than I ever imagined I ever would be. Right. And uh, and actually, the book deal came about in a very recovery-oriented way. It's a very cool story. What happened was there was a um, an article about me in the Stanford Alumni Magazine, mm-hmm. and it said, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic, and kind of told a little. It was a short little article, <clears throat> and then I got an email out of the blue from a guy who uh, who um, be careful because I want to protect his anonymity but he was a guy that I didn't really know who was a couple years older than me at school but I knew who he was Mm -hmm. um but we had never I don't know that we had ever actually met in person but I knew his name and he Mm -hmm. he reached out to me he's like hey I read that story I'd love to talk to you can I call you and I was like okay he was kind of like a a big deal on campus right um and so we ended up talking and he was like I'm a I'm a executive at a big company I'm CEO you know and my company's getting ready to you know, do big things. And I just got out of Hazleton and nobody, my board of directors doesn't know, nobody knows, you know, my family knows and all of that, but like, I'm under a lot of stress and, you know, I don't have a sponsor and, and, you know, I'm just, he was literally like a week out of rehab or something like that. Right. So I said, listen, you got to get a sponsor, but I'm happy to talk to you. And we would talk on and off, you know, over the next couple months and, uh, you know, trying to impart whatever experience I could to him. And uh and then he one day he was like, Hey, you know, I used to uh rent this house from this book agent. Your story is so compelling, like, you know, you should you should I think you should talk to her, you know, she would she might be really interested in your story. I was like, okay. And I'd thought about doing a book, but it was seemed like such a far-fetched reality for right. me. Right. Um, so it wasn't like I had some book proposal all ready to go. So I spoke to this book agent and I said, here's kind of the you know, the the thumbnail of my story. And she's like, that's pretty interesting. Um, you know, I'd be into exploring this. Like, why don't we work on a proposal together? So I busted my butt for like three months on a proposal and, you know, wrote it like my life depended on. I just got really into it. And then she was like, well, publishing is so hard. You know, you got to thread the needle. And, you know, it's kind of like the movie business. If you're not making like Shrek 3 or like, you know, the Avengers, they're not interested. You know, so it has to be a very specific thing. And she was very, not pessimistic, but... But sort of cautious, like, you know, I, I will, I'll do my best and we'll see what happens. And I ended up selling the book in like, you know, 48 hours, you know, sort of like a preemptive bid. And it was like it all happened. Like it was like this divinely, you know, graced experience where right. it all came together. And I got this amazing editor at the great, you know, at, at Crown Random House. Right. Like It was the best of all worlds. You know, right. it was like and that agent out.
0: sold it even though she was not.
1: Yeah, she sold it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it all, it all worked out. But yeah. it was all because of basically... Um, extending yourself and being of service to somebody right. in, the, in, the, in the program. Right. You know what I mean? So right. it's that, that spiritual equation of when you're giving, when you're of service, you get back, back tenfold. Yeah. You yeah. And like not always in the life. form of
0: a book deal. No. Sometimes yeah, I know. Like them. that's a
1: very like, yeah. I mean, they say like when you get sober, you know, that's what you get. You get sober. It's not like you're promised some beautiful, amazing life. But I know right. that the more I am of service that, you know, my life is richer and better. And that doesn't mean that you get a book deal or a right. Ferrari or, you know, whatever. But right. it means you have a chance at a good life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or even the, you know, the children and the exactly. family and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So where are you from, Rich?
1: Washington, D.C. Washington, yeah. D.C.
0: So you raised there uh, and um, family is, you know, very education is focused. Yeah. What, what's the what was the sort of
1: pretty traditional values? Pretty, pretty traditional. You know, I didn't grow up in an alcoholic house. Uh, my parents are still together. My needs were always met. We, when I was in high school, we were kind of we started out middle class and my dad kind of he was a lawyer and, you know, he got more and more successful each year. Um, so, you know, upper middle class by the time I graduated high school
0: and, brothers, and I have uh, like one, I have one sister, one sister, yeah, one, okay. one
1: younger sister. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, I was, I went to private high school, uh-huh. coat, coat and tie. Oh, right. that kind of private high school. Okay. Yeah. All boys? No. All boys. Okay. Yeah, all boys high school. But I was, you know, I was a, a loner kid, you know, I was always sort of self-conscious and, um, you know, when I was younger, I had a patch on one eye and the headgear. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was a, not a vision for you. Right. you know, I was very insecure. What wrong <laughs> with
0: your little eye?
1: I have a wandering eye. Oh, you do? I can't see eye, it at all.
0: Have, oh, yeah, oh wow. Oh, or, okay. It
1: goes on. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Too bad. Yeah, let's, you know, let's can see podcasting. that. that yeah. Creepy thing. I didn't see anything, by the way. But it's,
1: you know, the typical thing of like, you know, feeling like everyone else has the rule book to life and you don't. Right. And I discovered the sport of swimming when I was about 12 years old and it was the first thing that I was ever good at, you know, and I kind of took to that and it was this womb-like experience because I could go to the pool and I could be away from the bullies and when your head's underwater, you know, no one can bug you. Were they picking on you? Yeah, I was a little bit of a, I got, I was on the receiving end of, I was a very nerdy, like, awkward looking kid. Oh. So... But, um, but you know, I really gave myself to that sport, And in, in certain respects, you can make the argument that that was like my first drug of choice. Right. You know, I just went all in on So that. every
0: day after school, that's what you did?
1: I, w- I got up every morning at 4.45 mm-hmm. and I went to some practice and went to school and then went to some practice after school for another two hours. Right. So I was like training like three to four hours a day. Right. And uh, by the time I graduated high school, and then, you know, I wasn't a great student, but then my grades picked up. And by the time I was a senior in high school, I was a top student at my school and, And I was a top swimming recruit, you know, so I was getting recruited by all these colleges and I wasn't into drugs and alcohol in high school because I was training so much. But then I started going on these recruiting trips and they just, they basically, you know, designed the party for you. Right. uh, Because they're all
0: wooing you? Yeah. So what was your first drink? What was that like? The
1: the first time I got drunk, I was visiting uh, University of Michigan and it was a, they had had a big swim meet and then a big party afterwards and i can i'll still i'll never forget being at this party um and it was the middle of winter and and uh, i was given a beer in like a giant big gulp cup mm-hmm. and i was like all right you know i'm going to do this and i drank it and it was that trait thing that you yeah. always hear of just feeling like the warm blanket being you know enveloping you and suddenly the lights going on and thinking this is amazing. You know, this is the solution to every problem that I didn't know that I had.
0: Right. And right. just
1: suddenly comfortable in your own skin, I could look at a girl in the eye and right. flirt and tell a joke and I was laughing with people and I was comfortable around other people because I was always like a, a wallflower if I even went to a party, which was rarely. Right. So right. and the one thing that happened that was remarkable was um in the middle of this party. Uh, there was a guy called Bruce Mm Kimball and he was a very, very famous decorated diver, Mm -hmm. Olympic, Olympic champ. I don't know if he was a gold medalist. I think he got a silver medal in like 84, I'm not sure, but, um, but uh, a terrible alcoholic. And he had, um, I can't remember. I'm going to, I'm going to botch all the facts, but he had, um, uh, gotten into a lot of trouble with his drinking and I think it, it, it had already progressed at this point and I saw him hold a cup a plastic cup of beer that he got from the keg and then do a standing backflip holding this beer and land on his feet and he didn't spill the beer right and I thought that was the coolest thing i had ever seen right and this guy went on I think a couple years after this and he he crashed his car head-on into A bunch of people he killed some people and ended up in jail and you know basically destroyed his life and i think he's sober now i'm not sure exactly what he's doing but it was this horribly tragic incident and his father was the olympic diving coach
0: Oh my god! So
1: you know, here's the guy that I'm looking at. Like that is, I want to be like that guy, right? You know what I mean? And to see what had happened to him later. I think you
0: need to have him on your podcast, by the
1: way. I would like to do that. that I think you should have him on your podcast. Yeah, we could
0: both. We could share Mm -hmm. him. So you, so you're on that trip, and you have your first drink, and you see this. You know that this is the life you can lead, and you then what happens after that?
1: Well, it was a it was a slow progression. Right. I mean, I, you know, I ended up like, you know, by the time what happened was I got into every college, you know, right. I got in every college I applied to. I got into Harvard. I got into Princeton. And I ended up going to Stanford. Right. So I left. I was like, I'm going to California. You know, I, I want to get away as far away from the East Coast as possible. And at the time, <clears throat> Stanford had the number one swimming program in the country. And I could have gone to I was going to go to Harvard where I would have been a standout, you know, person on the team right away. And at Stanford, there were Olympic gold medalists and record holders. And and I was kind of going to be a walk on if I went there. But I was like, I'm going to be the little fish in the big pond. Like, I got to give it a go. And when I got there, I just, you know, I just got enamored with partying, you know. And so. It was a slow degradation of, you know, everything aspirational in my life. And the first thing that drinking did was that it's just it destroyed my swimming career. I swam all right my freshman year. And then after that, I really never swam fast again. And all of my kind of dreams and hopes like I was going to be a doctor and I just forgot about all that stuff. And all I cared about was, you know, where's my next good time?
0: Did you stay on the team the whole time?
1: I I didn't swim my senior year, so I quit. Yeah, right. I quit. Mm. I have a
0: question. So going back, you didn't grow up in an alcoholic family. Was there alcoholism somewhere in your family?
1: Um, like... Yeah, there, there are hints around the but edges really. here and there, but no, there was never any, but there was never a, somebody in the family where you're like, oh, stay away from your yeah, uncle glad. whoever, yeah. you know what I mean? Right. So I never, I didn't grow up around it, right. you know, and it wasn't in my experience and I, you know, there was no abuse in my family and, or anything like that. So, um,
0: and what about, what about this, um, dedication to athletics? Was that something or, or was that also something that was unusual about you?
1: Um, There was no one else in my family who is that dedicated to sports or athletics, but it was a very achievement oriented household. Like I definitely grew up with pressure to perform academically and uh, and always trying to kind of grab that carrot or always feeling like you're falling short and, you know, never kind of feeling like, uh, you know, you've made it or getting kind of that feeling of security around that.
0: Yeah, I relate to that. And it's, you know, and it's a, it's a hard thing in right. life because if you didn't ever get that, it's hard to start giving that to yourself even right. when you are, you know, cause your brain is just always like, well, who cares? There's right. somebody better, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so did you – but did you didn't – did you graduate okay from Stanford even though you were, you know – Yeah, I graduated.
1: Florida. I graduated okay. I mean I was, you know, I was a functioning alcoholic right. for many years, you know. Right. And I was able to, by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin, chin, like get into law school
0: and, you know. And was, so when you said your <laughs> dreams – like so you wanted to be a doctor and so your dad was a lawyer. So you thought, right. okay, well, the doctor thing – I didn't do pre-med clearly. Right. But I could go to law school. Is that how that came about? Yeah, it wasn't
1: like, oh, I have this – fascination with the law. Right. It was more like, that's a stand-up thing to do that I can receive, you know, a pat on the back and we'll, it's socially acceptable. And I get to wear a nice suit. and right. uh, Have nice lunches. It wasn't like the practice of law was all that alluring. It was more like, this is a safe thing to do.
0: Do you think the practice of law is all that alluring to anybody? Yeah. Uh, I think
1: there are certain people for whom it is and, and God bless them, you know, but I think, I think there are a lot of at least corporate lawyers out there sort of suffering quietly.
0: Yeah. So you went to Cornell right, for mm-hmm. law school. So you go back I was the
1: last person uh accepted off the wait list.
0: Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: I barely got in and uh so I figured if if I don't graduate last in my class then that's a move up.
0: <laughs> did you, you know? do it? Did you succeed? In-
1: I, yeah, I did. I don't know where in the class I, I graduated, but I did I did fine. Guy. But I was you know, I really like ramped up the drinking when I, well, I I lived in New York city for a couple of years after college. And that's really, you know, that's, that's that's like Disneyland for alcoholics, you know, no car, you can walk around the street drinking and after hours parties that go till 5am, you know, whatever. So I definitely tapped into that, you know, and that was really where it, it clicked into like a a higher gear of like getting into trouble. And how
0: did you get in trouble?
1: More, more, not, not trouble with the law, really. Just, I mean, well, bar fights life. and stuff like that, but, right. but really just like sort of digging a hole for my spirit mostly, you know, I think, mm-hmm. and then thinking I'm going to go to law school and it's a, it was geographic, you know, right. I'll, I'll be, I'm going to be in this small town. I'm going to be away from Manhattan. I'll be able to focus. I'll be in a structured environment. And of course that, you know, doesn't really work.
0: Um, just alcohol though. You weren't doing drugs.
1: Yeah. Pretty much a pure purist. Mm-hmm. I feel like, I feel like, uh, just, I feel insecure about that. Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't cre- blame
0: you. It's and, very, and to be clear, like
1: my story is pretty pedestrian, you know, like I got into trouble and I reached some pretty dark, low places, especially at the end. And there's some crazy drama that, that occurred around that. And, a, a, a you know, like a wedding that went awry and all kinds of nonsense. Your own. But, yeah.
0: <laughs> I want to hear that story. <laughs>
1: That's like a four hour podcast.
0: Well, okay. But I, I mean, it's somewhere, it's somewhere that like it went right on the honeymoon.
1: It did. I ended up uh, sending my, uh, supposed, supposed wife home in the middle of the honeymoon.
0: Um, how did uh, that happen?
1: It's such a, in order to like understand what happened, I'd have to fill in so many details, but essentially what happened was I was, I was living, I was a lawyer in San Francisco and, uh, engaged to this woman, uh, who was living in Palo Alto while well, I'd been li- and and, and then uh, we got engaged and I got a job in Los Angeles. I moved down here. So for the latter months of our engagement, we were living in separate cities right. and she started to get cold feet and she was seeing the signs of my alcoholism eking out all over the place. And, and, uh, and we ended up going through with the wedding, but what I didn't realize at the time is she really had no uh, plans for actually being married to me, mm-hmm. but she was too, how do I explain it? I mean, she, I think she wanted me to call it off. Right. And she was right. sending me all these signals, like, please call off this wedding without actually saying it. And I was trying, I was sort of being...
0: The nice codependent, guy. Yeah, her. like trying
1: to make her feel comfortable. Right. Or, you know, and where she just wanted me to beat it, you know? Right. And when I didn't call it off, and then she, we were kind of stuck in this scenario, we actually went through with this ceremony and, you know, sort of like everybody you love in this one place for this, right. you know, for this, this thing. And, uh, and then she didn't want to sign the marriage certificate. So that was a whole other saga. Yeah. So we ended cool. up not so we ended up not actually consummating it either physically or on paper,
0: but everybody thought you had, but everybody thought they we were had there. exactly.
1: Yeah. And I didn't want to go on this honeymoon with her. And I was confused and alone and I couldn't tell anybody what was happening because I was so ashamed. Right. And we ended up because it had already been paid for, we went on this honeymoon anyway, and it was a horrific experience of sort of not speaking to each other until I couldn't take it anymore and said, you know, you gotta go. And that's that's the last time I've seen her, actually.
0: Okay. There were no amends. There was
1: no well, I've made yeah, well, that's a whole other thing. Like how to make amends to that. You know, like I have a like, I was so angry for so long. How could this person do this to me? And blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the work in recovery has really been owning, you know, how I contributed to that. And, right. And, and for the most part, you know, I created that whole scenario. And my, amends, my amends really to her is, is a living amends to not be like that and to let her live her life. I mean, right. she was having an affair the whole time and she ended up marrying this guy that she was having an affair with when, I, when we were engaged and all this, you know, insanity.
0: Right, um, right.
1: And in my book, I was very clear to kind of, you know, tell her, you know, that, uh, that I was sorry.
0: And you haven't heard you so I haven't
1: heard from her. Right. I, you know, I would imagine, she, I, I, I can't imagine she's not, she's not, she's unaware of that, but it's right. not like there's been any
0: right, exchange. Right. right, right. So, okay, but so you, you despite your, your developing alcoholism, you graduate from law school.
1: hmm Somehow. Somehow. Yeah, so I mean, law school's not easy, yeah, but no, you did it's that. Not, yeah, I would like, I don't know how that happened, but I did. <laughs> you weren't even on any of the good stimulant no. drugs, so
0: I, I don't know. You I, know. Just, I you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somehow I got through that okay. and, uh, and you know, found my, and, and I got a good job. You know, I got a good job in a law firm in San Francisco, and I wasn't into it, though. Like, literally, right. I was terrible because I was trying to do the least amount of work possible and not get fired, and and, and I was, frankly, I was bored in San Francisco, and I wanted to be more in entertainment related work and I I did get a job. What kind of law were you practicing? I was doing at that time I was doing like employment law litigation Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And uh and I wanted to come down here and I did get a job down here at a at a pretty cool firm that was doing some interesting things. And and what happened was is you know, when you're when you're living in San Francisco, I could go out really late and get really drunk and figure out how to drive my car on back streets and not get pulled over and you know, I'd wake up and not know where I parked my car, and you know, ride ride a mountain bike around the neighborhood looking for it, and right? <laughs> that kind I mean, of stuff. I lived in but, San Francisco.
0: Uh, it's not quite as easy to get to be a drunk there as you're as you're making it. Well, what so, I my perhaps. point my point
1: being that that when I moved to Los Angeles, it was very different. Like, I got I got I got a DUI almost like immediately, you know, mm-hmm. and then it was a wake up call because the police, you know, the way they treat you in Los Angeles is very different. You know, they treat you like. You're on crack, you've got a shotgun, you know, under the seat right. and you stole the car and there's a dead body in the trunk. Right. You know? And that's the way you're, you're, and I suppose they have to do that. But I got two DUIs in like six weeks.
0: But know? that's also bad so, luck. Yeah. I mean, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I drove drunk yeah. for years never did, but, but I, got,
1: you know. I think I got pulled over like maybe, I don't know, 12 or 15 times in my whole life and right. never actually got a DUI until I came here. So it was about time. Right. You know, my you number was up. Yeah.
0: So you got these DUIs and you said, and they made you do a court card. Is that how you came you into it? Yeah, to do all right?
1: that. And I would like forge the signature of yeah. the court card. And I mean, after the first one, I was like, well, everybody gets a DUI. Right. And then when I got the second one and they were like, you're going to jail. You know, I was like, that was a, that was a, a reckoning moment of realizing like, yeah, you're a little bit. I mean, of course, I always knew I was an alcoholic, but there's that. There's a difference between that knowledge and actually taking action to like confront it.
0: When you say you always knew, what do you mean? Like from that first time?
1: I think on a very sub on a very unconscious level the first time, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it, you know, it became clear to me in not very in a not very long period of time that you know, my drinking was different than everyone else. Or, you know, I was that, you know, why am I always the last guy to leave the party? And why am right. I drinking, you know, in college? Why am I drinking the beers that are sitting around at the party with cigarette butts in them? And right. you know, things like right. that, like other right. people aren't doing that. And, and you know, going out two nights a week, went to three nights a week, went to four nights a week until, you know, it's like my life was degrading and other people were just having fun. And so I knew right. like that I was different. And, you know, you're kind of trying to manage it because you don't want to give it up so you're trying to create these checks and balances on it but I always knew like someday this is going to be you know probably more of a problem than I would like it to be
0: and so then that day came and did you go you didn't go into treatment anywhere you just went to not initially
1: Uh, ultimately I did yeah but I mean I, I took a stab at like trying to get sober by showing up in the rooms and and uh but you know I wasn't ready to give myself over to it. You know, right. I, was tu- I was a tourist. You know, I'd come in late, sit in the back, try not to talk to anybody. Right. Get out you know, there, get my court cards. yeah. Stuff. Yeah, exactly.
0: Things like and that. and then
1: I could say like I'm in it. You yeah. Know, but I kept relapsing. I was, you know, I was just a habitual relapser, in and out, in and out. Right. And it just got darker and darker and darker and less and less fun. And the fun was gone. And at the end, um, you know, I was drinking vodka Tonics in the shower and and uh, you know, cradling a, a tall boy between my legs, driving to work, and hiding—you know—sneaking drinks in the day and hiding empties, and and uh, you know, on the verge of. When I got my second DUI, my boss knew about it.
0: Mm-hmm. It
1: was a story like he, uh, we, he was handling some excessive force cases with the LAPD and the Beverly Hills Police Department. Mm-hmm. And my second DUI, my, they were—I got. 0.27 and 0.29, so I was low, you yeah. right. like, I was way gone, right? Right. And the second one, I was going the wrong way down a one-way street in That's Beverly Hills. That's Yeah. At yeah, yeah. <laughs> like three in the morning. Not good. And the cop who arrested me uh, took my, when he, they take all your stuff, he saw my business card, and he's like, right. I know this firm, you know? Like,
0: right. And he
1: called my boss, and he said, I picked up one of your boys. So my boss, like, knew. He calls right. me into his office, you know, and he's like, what's going on? You know, and I'm like, am I getting fired? It's like you're not getting fired, but you got to deal with what's going on, and um, so the volume's getting turned up. Right. Right. And relapse, relapse, relapse until one day, you know, I just woke up one morning hungover, and it was not too dissimilar from so many others, and just had that willingness to do something different. And it had been suggested to me by my parents, who really didn't want to talk to me until I was ready to deal with the problem. That, you know, I should check out treatment. And just that day I was like, okay, I'll I'll go. Like I was just, I'd had enough. I was desperate. And uh, that night I was on a plane and I went went to, it uh, it was called Springbrook. It's now it's owned by Hazleton, but it's in, it's outside, it's outside Portland. Oh, okay. Okay. It's called Springbrook Northwest. And, uh, and it's since been acquired by Hazleton. So it is a Hazleton now, but it's like in farmland, like maybe an hour outside of Portland.
0: And it worked. Like you got it there. Yeah. I mean,
1: I was like, I showed up thinking, you know, I got to get back to work and I'm going to be here. I'm going to stay here maybe three weeks. I'm going to clean the pipes out and I got to hustle hustle back because I'm so important. And you know, how's the world going to function without me?
0: Yeah.
1: And for the first time though, because I had that willingness and as you know, like it's all about willingness, Mm -hmm. um, for the first time I had to kind of relate honestly about how I was living my life. And I remember one of the first kind of assignments or tasks we had to do was to write down 10 incidents of where you're drinking or using, Increased. like got you into trouble. Oh, okay. or like here was what I was planning to do. Like I'm going to meet a friend for a drink, you know, and then right. here's what actually happened. And you tell this terrible story of where it led right. you, how that affected you and how that affected other people in your life. And then you had to read it aloud, like in front right. of like 60 people. And I did that honestly, and they were like, "Yeah, you're uh, you have the alcoholism we typically see in like a 65 year old man. Like, we think you really? ought to think about sticking around a little bit longer than a couple weeks." And it's like, it's up to you, you know. Right. But you know, this is our suggestion. How and, long did you stay? And so I, I stayed for 100 days.
0: Uh huh. Wow. Good for you. And
1: uh, that changed everything. Yeah, it changed my life and it saved my life.
0: And so, Um, and then you came back and you got serious about, you know, making it a priority in your life.
1: Right. So, so I, I came back and yeah, it was all about building foundation of sobriety. So I was going to at least a meeting a day, if not two meetings a day. Right. And I was living in Santa Monica at the time, but, um, I had a morning commitment at a popular meeting in West Hollywood. That's how we knew each other. Yeah. 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 So that meeting, right. And, um, went to that went to that meeting every day and yeah. we're skirting on that line of like whatever <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, if you
0: don't say the name of it it's fine we gathered at 30 in the morning with like a hundred other people and it was good and it was important and it saved my life
1: and, and what was interesting about it for me was that it defied every expectation of what I thought um, recovery was about mm-hmm. because other sort of gatherings if mm-hmm. you will that I'd been to were kind of more in line with your what you would conjure up as your expectation for what these meetings oh your are worst like.
0: nightmare with the, to- yeah. the toothless and
1: this was different because there were all these young people yeah and they were cool and yeah. they were like interesting and creative and they looked happy and they were like people that i i i'm like these are people i could be friends with right and i i didn't know that that was possible
0: i know i had the same experience and
1: and uh because i thought i was just going to be hanging out with old dudes in trench coats chain smoking
0: and you were okay with that and
1: i was ready to do that because i i was that desperate but when i realized like there's this incredible vitality and energy around, um, sobriety and particularly young people in sobriety in Los Angeles. I just grabbed onto that yeah. with everything. Yeah. And, and the people that I met at that particular, there's, st- you know, it's now 16 years later, oh they're God. still like my f- best friends. Really? You know, so. so,
0: so the people you know from there, you still talk to all, all the, the time. time. All right. the time. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so then, and then you were able to, you know, build this great life, meet the woman, start having the kids, mm-hmm. build up the law practice.
1: Right. So that it was like, you know, when I was 18, you know, the world was my oyster. I was like on this pedestal, like, oh my God, he's this amazing, talented swimmer. And he's, you know, academically on top of the world. Like he's our next Senator, you know, it was like that kind of a thing. You right. know? And, and, uh, and I squandered all that, you know, and I destroyed all that. So, you know, it was time to, you know, make hay trying to, like, repair all the wreckage. That Did I'd you
0: feel like created. that again in sobriety? Like you had all, you know, the world at your fingertips or no?
1: No, I felt like I needed to claw my way back up to oh, okay. just a, a modicum happened. of respectability. Right. Um, but but the interesting thing that happened was it. What I didn't. very quickly, like what happens when you're, when you're newly sober is you're compelled to look inside yourself Yeah, and it's an inside job, as they say. And if you do that with honesty and with rigor, you will discover many things about yourself. And it became clear to me that I'd never really developed a a healthy relationship with who I was or really was in touch with with what I wanted to do or what I wanted to share. And I, and and I, as if I was living someone else's life. Like I, my whole life was about the American dream, you know, study hard, get good grades, go to the good school and get the good job and kind of, you know, cl- climb the ladder, right. right? And this is how you become not just a responsible member of society, but a happy person. Right. And as I was starting to kind of do that again, and and what my experience prior to getting sober, I realized like, I'm not happy doing that. This is right. not the life for me, and so I realized that I was going to be probably embarking in a different trajectory. Much to the chagrin of my parents, I suppose. Sure. Like sure. you know, I don't know that this mantle of you know being a you know a partner in a law firm is really the right tact for me. I can will myself into it. I'm right. smart enough to do it. Right, but it's like jamming a square peg into a round hole. Right. So I did go back and I was at the law firm and I was trying to do all the right things. And, and as I got more and more sober, that that life became more and more incompatible with like what I wanted to do and who I was. And that created like a, a interpersonal crisis that I had to reconcile.
0: Would I have a question before we get into your interpersonal crisis. <laughs> did you like bicycle over here or do we need to worry about your meter?
1: no I, I i drove I parked on the uh side street over there. There wasn't even a meter
0: okay, well, that's because you're just a little bit smarter than mm. my previous guest usually mm. there, there is an incident where we have to stop and and I don't sound at it so and we as just,
1: a podcasting it, veteran yeah. <laughs> I may have to take a bathroom break, but I will not have to go change the meal
0: okay well that's good to know should we take our bathroom break now <laughs> do
1: you have to go I no can I'm, going. I'm, I'm inhuman good. I
0: don't know okay no right. we-
1: how long do we go for
0: so, seven hours is that so, cool yeah well we like to go if, if you've ever done a race we like to go as long three as days. that race yeah three yeah. days okay and I thought though that race was without sleeping so we're not gonna yeah. sleep no it, I don't know
1: we go well, with, my, with my show I just go I go as long as the conversation is interesting yeah, yeah. You know? like some what people are like our podcast. time is up and I'm like why is our time up yeah having you know you don't that when you're having a conversation with
0: someone. Right, if only we could. If only that was societally acceptable.
1: But that's the beauty of podcasting. You don't have to be in a radio format.
0: No, I know. I love it. I just love that you get to hear people you know, not give the scripted answers and to make mistakes and you know all of that stuff. So, but so okay, and so then this is around the time of your 40th birthday when you get winded walking up the stairs, right? I I know.
1: Sort of, yeah. I mean, right? You've done your homework.
0: Well, you know I know Um, bits of the, the myth.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what, it, what had been happening was, you know, here I am, like jamming this square peg into a round hole, right. and like, you know, it—it—it—it—it's it, sort of like uh, what Henry D- David Thoreau said: "The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation, right. and what is considered resignation is confirmed desperation."
0: Oh, I never ever hear yeah, the second that's part. That's the full
1: part. That's yeah. the full quote. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it was true in his time, and 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 maybe even more true now, but certainly true in my life. You know, I was like, I was living, I was I was in an existence where I was getting paid really well, and I was trying to you know do all the right things, and and you know and 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 really unhappy, like, but but feeling like I was in this prison, I didn't know how to escape because it was right. all I knew. And so, what do I do? I spend all my money on things that I think are going to make me happy, and buy a fancy car, and all that right. kind of stuff. And, um, and meanwhile, I'm, I'm, I'm medicating my emotions through the foods that I'm choosing to eat. So I'm eating a lot of crap food. I'm eating McDonald's and pizza hut and just Jack of the box. And, you know, really, and it wasn't until many years later that I realized how much of that was emotional. And, uh you know, when, and I was used to being an athlete and swimming and I could just eat whatever I wanted and it didn't matter. But, you know, I was now, I was sitting at a desk, you know, for many years, I've just been sitting at a desk and packed on like 50 pounds. And yeah, I was never like, Super obese or anything. So, is
0: this when I like our conversation by the like on the 4th of July I was around then? Because I don't ever remember you being him. Uh, what
1: year was that?
0: That was 2001 or 2002.
1: Yeah, no, this started to really ramp up like around uh, a couple of years later than that, I suppose. Um, yeah, so I was like. I mean, I got like, you know, I got all beefed out. You know, I had the big round head and, Mm -hmm. you know, I just looked like a guy who's working too much at the law firm. You know, it wasn't like that unusual, but it was more like how I felt inside. Like I just felt like I was dying, you know? Right. And, uh, and, um, and yeah, it all came to a head like shortly before I turned 40 and had this moment walking up the stairs, (laughs) going to bed late one night and, and, you know, had to take a break halfway up a staircase, you know, winded out of breath, sweat on my brow and tightness in my chest. And, you know, it's not like I was having a heart attack, but it was scary enough to make me really, um, you know, take stock of how I was living my life and my lifestyle choices. And, um, you know, when you, it all goes back to recovery because when you have that sort of moment of clarity and you decide you're going to get sober, you realize the power of that that moment right and that we all have these moments in our life where we can make these decisions and if we if we're able to you know summon the courage to do that that your life can change in a profound way
0: okay well i'm glad you're saying that because i do not i have had that experience with Mm -hmm. drugs and alcohol and i've had that experience with smoking cigarettes Mm -hmm. but i have never had that experience about anything else where, but, but
1: maybe you're a happily adjusted person uh, who's living. You're,
0: you're. A make very, no mistake, there is no way that's true. <laughs>
1: but you're, you're pretty actualized in the sense that you, you are, you know, a creative person. You're in your, you know, you're in your creative. Uh, power and you know what you have to offer and you're engaged. But
0: in there's that. a lot that I would love to be able mm. to do that with. There's stuff right now where I wish I could make that decision and then just right. like with with 12 step, what was amazing was that there was this there was just do this, go here, say that, call right. this, read this. Whereas in life there isn't something like that.
1: Right. I think pain is the great motivator. Of you know, if you're in enough pain yeah, over I, something, yeah. then you can I know, I like, know how harness to pay. that.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> the trick is to be able to to do that when you're not in that Cause to, to understand you have that power within you all the time and right. you don't have to be in a terrible place of suffering in order right. to make that change that's the hard but he,
0: part. nobody's willing i mean i yeah. i, I yeah. mean i'm barely willing when i'm in that kind of pain i know
1: you um, know believe me i know so
0: but and because because your wife already had healthy eating do you think so you knew the at least the first step was to do this cleanse right
1: well, what happened was, yeah, so I have this moment and, and I'm thinking, you know, I got to change and I need to change now. Like I, it, it has to happen yeah. immediately yeah. and it has to be specific um, because I know, like if I just blow it off, that I'll just go back to doing what I, what I was doing before, just like a relapse. Right. You know? And uh, – and you know I I grabbed on to my wife because she was a healthier person than me I didn't like go read a bunch of books or anything like that Um, she was just what was available to me and the the interesting thing about that is that she had been trying sort of unsuccessfully (laughs) for many years to try to introduce me to this or that like you know even though I'm in recovery and it's a spiritual program she was a much more spiritually developed individual than I was like she's always reading books from this guru or that and trying to develop her, you know, kind of uh, personal growth and all these sorts of things. And she's like, read this book. Why don't you read this book? Or this guy has something interesting to say. Or like, why don't we start eating this way? And, and the more she kind of pushed, the more resistant I was. Right. I was like, leave me alone. Right. You know? And then she kind of had a moment where she's like, all right, I'm, I have a decision to make. Like, either I'm going to continue to try to compel him to do something that he doesn't want to do. Or I'm going to truly, like, just be in acceptance of who he is. Like, I'm married to this guy. I'm going to choose to love him the way that he is. And I'm going to honestly, like, in my heart, like, let go of my need or desire for him to be anything different than he is. Right. And when that shifted, which was around this same time, like, I could feel that energy change. And I was like, oh, like, mean it's on me? Like, I actually, like, have to make this decision for myself.
0: That's interesting, which
1: is kind of like a, an Al-Anon kind of thing. Yeah. Right. You know, and I think that that really, that was powerful because it really did make me have to take responsibility and these things, all these things kind of dovetailed around the same time. So, so yeah, so I, that's what I did. I did this like juice cleanse, which was like, you know, detoxing off heroin. It was terrible.
0: Really, <laughs> like, you were like,
1: Well, the first like day and a half, yeah, I was like buckled over on the couch. I couldn't move. And yeah. it, was, it was horrible, but it, but you know, it's like, know if there's one thing we know how to do it's like what we know what a detox is like we know like it'll get better right stick with it or right right and by the end of that period that little experiment i really did feel incredible like i felt better than i felt and i as long as i could remember you know maybe ever you know the 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 extent to which my vitality like spiked was was extraordinary right i couldn't believe how good I could feel in such a short period of time by doing this simple thing. Right. And it made me really think about uh, or, or understand how resilient the human body is, you know, that in especially like drugs, alcohol, unhealthy lifestyle, stress, you know, fast food, all these sorts of things that I've been like abusing myself with for so long that in like literally a week I could feel differently. Like right. that's crazy.
0: Right. Right. You know? That's a powerful system we got going here. Right. And then, and so today, and so now, so you, you, it's all plant based, everything that you eat. Well, not at that time. I mean,
1: now it is, yeah. Right. So I've kind of, that's how it's evolved. I mean, it wasn't like an overnight thing. I mean, I did this juice cleanse and I'm like, I want to continue to feel this good. How am I going to do that? And I played around with, you know, different ways of eating and I experimented with being a vegetarian, not because I had some extraordinary compassion for the animals, but I thought, it made sense to me in a recovery context because in recovery it's very black and white. You know, you're right. you're you're either drinking or you're not. You know, you're you're, doing, you're sober or you're using. Right. There's no gray area. And like of all the kind of diets, like oh well, if you're a vegetarian, it's kind of the same. It's an analog. Right. You know, right. it's like you're eating meat or you're not. Like I could wrap my brain around. Like that made sense to me right. because I see the world through this prism of recovery. Yeah. Right.
0: And it's very black. Most right. alcoholics see it as black mm-hmm. and white anyway.
1: But the problem is that, you know, I'm also a lawyer, so I'm looking for the loopholes. And, you know, it's right. like, well, I could go to, I could eat Pizza Hut if I don't put pepperoni on the pizza. Right. Like, that's vegetarian, you know. Right. So I started doing cheating and I just, I wasn't doing it right. I wasn't really eating very healthy. And I did that for like six months and, you know, it was back to like sitting on the couch and, you know, not losing any weight, not feeling good. And, and was ready to just kind of give up on this whole idea of like trying to eat healthy. And I thought, well, maybe I'll, What I wonder what would happen if I got rid of, you know, all the animal products, got rid of the dairy and got rid of this processed food. I wonder if that would make any difference. And I did that, uh, I didn't have any expectation that that would make any difference, really. I thought, you know, this will, I'll do this, and then I can honestly go back to eating the way that I was and say that I tried everything. Right. But I stepped into that, and, and then within like seven to ten days of making that switch, I felt... Like I felt when I did that cleanse, like I felt amazing, and so it's been, it's been a process of, of, of building on that ever since. So yeah, it's been I've been completely plant based for about seven years, over seven years now.
0: And and so and you ultimately um so are you you're not practicing law at all anymore
1: no i stopped practicing when my book came out Mm -hmm. um but you know in the in the wake of kind of changing my diet and having all this energy like that's when i started like trying to get fit again not because i had like i had no plan of returning to becoming a competitive athlete that was never part of the equation it was just i had so much energy i needed to burn it off because i couldn't sit down i couldn't focus and I just wanted to lose a little bit of weight and enjoy my kids at their energy level. And that was really it. But the right. more I did it, the more I realized I had this this capacity for it. And the more I enjoyed it. And I just enjoyed feeling my body again after right. so many years, like connecting with myself and being out in nature. And there was something very primal about it. And it was also like very much an active meditation for me. Right. And uh, and really kind of one thing led to another. And, you know, sort of, you know, I, I started... <laughs> I, 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 what happened was really that, that this idea of how resilient the human body, I couldn't shake this idea. And I thought, well, if I could feel this good, like how I wanted to test that, like right. how, if I'm, if I could feel this good so quickly, what actually am I capable of physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually? And I needed a challenge to test that, you know, to right. really like see where I could go with it. Um, and that's how the Ultraman thing kind of transpired. It wasn't like, I'm going to go beat a bunch of people on a race. It was like, I wanted to have a spiritual experience. I wanted to see what I was actually, what my my physical, emotional, spiritual, and mental limitations were. And that seemed to be the ultimate thing because it was so incomprehensible.
0: Right. So you what know, role does spirituality play in this? It, it's, it's
1: all spiritual. Right. For me, I mean, it's much more spiritual than it is athletic, you know, and the whole reason that it that it inspired me to get involved in it was to learn something about myself, you know, develop a greater understanding of what makes me tick. And I think when you when you're in that that this kind of an endeavor that's so challenging physically that it really makes you it's sort of like when you're in recovery, like you don't really figure out what your character defects are until you're in a relationship, right?
0: right you know because it brings enough, it out well or, until or, or enough time passes right that you exactly can't ignore it.
1: right right and but this was a way of really kind of confronting a lot about myself because you're in so much pain or you're you know you're forced to kind of you're make choices about you know what you can tolerate and what you can't that it really the more I did it the more I was learning about myself and it's been really just that
0: and the editor, uh, this is a very sloppy transition. It's <laughs> no. not one of my skill we filled set up lies. the memory cards. We, just, we did so much to say, yeah. um, but but so we were sort of we were we were working towards the you know current to current day basically. Right. We were getting current, as right. they say.
1: Yeah, what were we talking about?
0: You know, it, it, it was very profound and very uh, meaningful. That part I know, but the specifics I don't recall. Um, but basically. Um, I, 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 well, here let's talk about okay I, here's what i want to do and maybe in doing that we'll we'll get back to it somehow um in order to uh stay sober today what do you do
1: still very active in uh my recovery and i would say that um i mean first and foremost you know I'm, I'm by no means any kind of shining example of sobriety or yeah, recovery. Join you know? the club. I stumble and I make mistakes all the time, right? And I don't do it perfectly, and uh, and it's been hard. You know, it's been hard. It's it's been hard, and it's weird to have written a book where there's like a recovery story because then it, sort of implicit in that is this idea that you you've conquered it, you know, and this is in your past, and and that's not the case, and that's not how I perceive it. It requires a, a lot of work for me to um, be on top of it. And, you know, I have this persistent illusion that, that, um, I can be on cruise control, you know, yeah. or, and it you was, and
0: millions of other yeah, alcoholics, it, it, uh,
1: you know, it was, it was made very clear to me <clears throat> very early in sobriety that there is no stasis. You're either moving towards a relapse or you're moving towards, you know, greater health and recovery. And there's no standstill. Right. But I continue to try to convince myself yeah, that, that it'll cruise, be different or that like, you just forget. And so my experience has been, you know, I cruise until I'm in enough pain and, yeah. and then I address that
0: shift gears and
1: then I take my will back and try to run my own life myself right. until that stops working again. Um, you know, I've never lost touch with the program. I continue to be, you know, my life is is about that, you know, and but it's. It would be dishonest to say that I wake up every day and every single day that uh, I put sobriety first. You know, that's, you know, when I do, my life is better. And but more often than not, I'm putting other things ahead of that until that causes problems in my life. And I have to remember because I forget.
0: Right. 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 I mean, I, I I definitely relate to that, and I think what's interesting is you can be telling yourself you're putting it first and doing twelve step and sharing and sponsoring, doing mm. all of these things and still not be doing it at all, right. you know? And, and the other thing is, I think in terms of putting oneself out there, I, I do think, you know, because I worry about that too. Like, in, I, I just hope with all the, like for me, like all the fucked up stuff I write, like at least people understand that like, I'm the furthest thing from claiming I got this. Right. Like, n- you know, pe- most sober people who are talking about it are not saying like, oh, look at me, do it like I did. Mm. We're just saying... You you can do this is possible. Right. You may be more of a mess than me. You may not be nearly as much of a mess as me. But but you know I think it I think it's hard because um, you know I think you have to work really hard to make it really clear that you're not holding yourself up as some example.
1: Yeah, that's correct. And you know people out there they want to look at somebody as an example of somebody who has succeeded, so they can hold on to that as like a lifeline. And I recognize that you know, sort of, you know, you probably fill that role for a lot of people. And from time to time I, I do, but it's God like, not. I don't, I mean, you know, <laughs> this is like, you know, we have good days and bad days. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But I think that, um, I think it, it's really, really hard because, you know, you sort of get sober and you're like, yes, surrender drugs, alcohol. And, and many of us have this extremely profound experience of having that desire removed. And then for me, it was like, and then suddenly. All, all these jobs I kept getting fired from suddenly, like the world seemed to be saying yes to me. And, oh, you really think I'm going to surrender that? Are you mm-hmm. kidding me? Right. And, you know, sobriety has been learning that I, that I actually, the more I th- think I can control, the more miserable I'm going to be. Right.
1: The road gets narrower and certain, you know, behavior patterns and habits and proclivities become, as you continue to grow and kind of live your life, hopefully become less and less acceptable to you until you have to sort of confront them and weed them out of your existence. And, you know, uh, but I'm very in touch every single day, um, with the fact that the life that I live today, this amazing life that I've been blessed with is really only because, uh, I got sober and, uh, and work on my sobriety every single day in some form. or
0: another. Right. Right. And, um, you know, in terms of, you know, the recent news of, um, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, we learned he overdosed, mm-hmm. you know, this is that same week. I'm releasing it later, but right. not much.
1: It was a couple of days um, ago.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, that news hit people really hard. You know, most of whom didn't know him, and and the media sort of had its spin. I, I thought the media. I was impressed with many many of the pieces that I read. Right. Um, but we were talking a little bit during the break. You didn't. You were, were you. Uh, how? What was your reaction to the response? I was
1: uh, I was deeply moved by it and very aggrieved. And you know, Philip. I was not friends with Philip. I had the a good occasion to have met him on several occasions, but I wouldn't even say that we were that acquainted. Um, but I'm close with his mom and, uh, and, um, and know his family, uh, more than I know him. And, mm. uh, and it really, it it deeply, deeply affected me, um, to the point where, I mean, I'm somebody who sometimes I feel like Dexter, you know, who's like peering in on, on, Two people having a, an authentic, intimate uh, interaction, and trying and confused, right. like trying to trying to figure out what a normal person I've never would seen do. It. Or, or, that, that,
0: is that like the, well, before them? Well, he's kind he of like them. this
1: emotionally numbed out person, right? You know, right. In oh addition to being a psychopath, <laughs> but different. like, oh my god. The point being, like, I don't. I often flog myself and feel guilty, and 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 frankly, like ashamed that I don't. Like when some when some tragedy occurs. I don't feel that emotional about it. Right. Like more often than not I'm numbed out, right. you know, and I just I feel callous or
0: right. and then
1: I feel guilty that I don't feel right. like a normal person is supposed
0: to feel. Exactly. Figure. I really That's her. my general uh, Reaction. experience.
1: But in this case, I really I was like I had an emotional breakdown and uh, and I was like it's weird because it's not like we, I was friends with Phil um, but for other reasons and other people that are involved that, I, that you know, I feel compassion for, mm. um, it, it definitely affected me deeply. And and it's been interesting um, because it, it's not like a TMZ thing. This is a CNN thing. This is an everybody thing. This right. is a, you know, New York Times thing. You know, I don't know. Did you see A.O. Scott wrote a beautiful mm-hmm. eulogy mm-hmm. in the New York Times about him? And I, I was so moved by reading that. And it's so heightened because of his extraordinary talent. other planetary talent. Yeah that it it becomes all the more poignant. And I think that um, what's been amazing to watch is the public's reaction to this, because it's certainly, you know, it's water cooler talk across the world. Um, And I have this uh, expectation that normal people will see it the way that I see it, or the way that you see it, you know, because we're immersed in recovery we have a certain perspective on what transpired and what led to that happening. And then to realize that a lot of people are in a different place with that emotionally or have judgments about it that couldn't be further or, or, or more distinct from the way that I see it.
0: But this can't be the first time you've noticed that the world doesn't seem to understand addiction very well.
1: No, but I think I can't remember a time where it was so much uh, kind of, you know, the trending, discourse. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like there's been other celebrity, you know, right. like overdoses, of course, but because he was so universally revered and, and kind of above reproach right. in every respect, right? it's different. It's colored differently. Yeah. I think it's framed differently. And, and then when I see somebody say, well, he, he made a choice, you know, and he, he was selfish and he left his kids behind and it's frustrating and it's upsetting to see that there's a lot of work to be done in terms of raising awareness over, um, you know, how addiction actually functions.
0: Right, right. But even so, it's not like sober people or people who are afflicted with addiction go, oh, okay, I get exactly what happened. This is what happened. We Mm -hmm. don't really know.
1: No, we don't know. You know. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen in a glimpse either. It was something that I, I, you know, I feel from an outsider's perspective had been building for a long time and culminated in this event. Right. Um, <clears throat> you know, these things don't happen in a vacuum, and, and it leaves you with a sense of powerlessness, you know, that, that if somebody who had so much could be taken in this way that, you know, none of us are immune. And I think it's imperative for everybody to understand that that it, it transcends choice. You know, when that locomotive has garnered enough steam over the last year or several months or even weeks or days. By the time that choice presents itself, that choice has already been made. There's, right. a, there's a powerlessness to that; it's, it becomes incapable um, to course correct.
0: Right. I mean, yeah. I, I, my fear, my you know, I just don't know that people who have not experienced that firsthand even can even fathom it because they're mm-hmm. like, "What do you mean? It's over twenty three years. What? You know, clearly it's not a problem. You know, right. and and it is it is something that, in my experience, defies logic, which is how I sort of had my spiritual experience is this doesn't actually logically make sense that you can stop doing something. And this thing you could not stop suddenly ceases to be even an issue.
1: Right. Or this idea that once you've accumulated time, you've somehow immunized yourself. Right. This kind of event transpiring.
0: Right, right, right. Um, Well, rich, rich, I think on that you know sobering note, mm-hmm. you know I think this I think we've had a good a good chat. It's a
1: good, yeah, right. It's good. I've
0: enjoyed it. Have All you right. Have you enjoyed it? I have.
1: Can't... Are you going to come on my podcast now?
0: Why? <laughs> but don't you only talk about like <laughs> like super healthy things? No. Oh my God. Okay. Well, listen
1: to my, listen to the Mishka I know. episodes.
0: Okay, I would I would just love... when we
1: took the break, I just said he he texted me. So there's a the, the seren- romance is alive. Well, is it serendipitous
0: or right? are you guys just texting twenty four seven?
1: No, no. I mean. Every couple days, you know, so like the fact that he would text while I'm sitting here, I want to be, can we make it a
0: triumvirate? Do you think that if I take up like athletics in a serious way and I start trying to to bro out with you guys, the three of us can No. Okay. Okay. Look, I'll start with just going on your podcast. That's that's good enough for me. Actually,
1: it'd be pretty fun to have the three of us do it together. If we can get all in the same room somehow.
0: Let's make it happen. Okay. Rich, thank you so much for doing this. It really is an honor and pleasure. I didn't lie. Right. He was good. Rich Roll, one of the world's fittest men, sober, alcoholic, thoughtful, best-selling author, um, fellow podcaster, check him out, richroll.com. You can follow him on Twitter, uh, and uh, at at Rich Roll, it's R-O-L-L, lest you think it's R-O-L-E, And, um, and if you Google him, you will, you will see, you'll, you'll be brought to new levels of what you think fitness uh, can be. So see you next time after partiers.